listen, it's a big commitment to do this right. And a lot of publications that are struggling will look at this and say, when well, we could just send somebody out there to get free food, because let me tell you, you know, restaurants will, will give free food to people if they think they're an influencer that can help out. But the publications that invest in something like what I do in a dining guide, I think, I think there's a great benefit, both in readership and revenues, if you do it right, that is worth, it's worth the investment. And as the world of news becomes more global and the internet gives access to people to so much information, a couple things that, that local news organizations still have the corner on that is sports and local culture. Every amazing flavor is an amazing human who has perfected their craft. Welcome to Flavors Unknown, a series of inspirational conversations with renowned culinary leaders. Discover how their cultural identity shapes their creative process with your host, Emmanuel. Welcome to episode 87 of the Flavors Unknown podcast. First of all, I want to wish you all a Happy New Year 2022. My guest today is a restaurant critic and columnist at the Philadelphia Inquirer. We talk about how Craig started his career, the impact of new technology on his job, the food scene in Philadelphia, and how a food critic approached the creation of a top restaurant list. I am your host, Emmanuel LaRoche. I have been in the food industry for more than 20 years, both in Europe and in the US. And every other week, I have genuine conversations with culinary experts from around the US to talk about their successes and challenges and how their cultural heritage influences their creative process. You can follow us on any podcast platforms and subscribe to our newsletter on the website flavorsunknown.com. And now, enjoy my conversations with Craig Laban. Hi, Craig. Welcome to uh, the podcast Flavors Unknown. Emmanuel, thank you so much for having me. It is a delight to be here. How would you describe your, your job on, on a day-to-day? Well, on a day-to-day, you know, my mission is to essentially size up Philadelphia's food scene all corners of the food scene, from fine dining to food trucks to neighborhood places, and tell people primarily, you know, what's out there and what, where they should be spending their dining money, but also to talk about the food scene through the lens of restaurants and food. So basically, on the day-to-day, you know, my focus traditionally has, is on the restaurant world rather than home cooking, even though I, I love to cook. And there is some of that content we can talk about that more a whole lot more over the past couple of years but primarily my world is restaurants and the, and it is vast in Philadelphia and my mission is to convey the full the full scope of what Philadelphia's you know kitchens have to offer and the stories they tell explain to me a little bit here the differences that exist or if there's an, even a difference between what we call a food journalist and and a food critic Anybody who works for a media you know, outlet should be considered a journalist. And if you happen to write about food, then you're a food journalist. I think the distinction is more about being a columnist or a critic as opposed to a food writer. You know, somebody who, who is in a food section who's writing uh, feature stories and news stories about 
food world, their mission is to is, is a little different. If you're a critic or a columnist, it's a matter of expressing personal opinion and voice and, you know, giving people that connection of, okay, you told me what it is, how is it? It's that next question. What do you think about this? Or what does this mean? And it, it is um, the opportunity to give context and analysis to the stories that people kind of learn through through the press releases and the various you know, postings that you see about what's new and happening around town. But do you give as well, you know, like a score, you know, when it comes to a restaurant or this is not part of what you do? Oh, absolutely. Well, traditionally, you know, we're talking about rating restaurants. And that is something, you know, I've been doing this a long time. And I kind of came up in the era when people were really uniform. Almost every publication was starting, was giving ratings to restaurants. And that's the tradition. I That's how I learned. And I started in New Orleans at the Times Picayune, and they were giving red beans instead of stars to restaurants. And that was a system that I inherited. And when I moved to Philadelphia, there was no rating system. In fact, Philadelphia Inquirer was one of the few publications that didn't rate restaurants, and it seemed to me that that needed to be started. And so we did. We started our own rating system. I give Liberty Bells instead of uh, stars or red beans. It's something that's local. People don't have a preconceived notion of what I think everybody thinks they know what stars mean. So it was an opportunity to create a unique system. But the, the rating is really, you know, that whole conversation, we can have it now or later, but it's you know, it goes through cycles and zeitgeist and all kinds of discussions. And now we're in this era where people are shedding ratings because they feel often that the numbers can't really distill the bigger picture of the story. I'm of a mind, I've always been an advocate for that, partly because that's how I came up. It made a lot of sense to me. But I do think it gives your readers just one more tool to uh, understand the context of what you think about a restaurant. Where does it belong in the larger context of the dining scene? How does it measure up against its own ambitions? There is no perfect rating system. They're very flawed. But if you have the benefit of having one person doing it for a long time, you can have the benefit of consistency. So people at least know what that means. I was talking uh, not too long ago with, you know, an, another food critic and he was mentioning that, you know, it happens that he had like, you know, bad feedback from chefs because he gave like uh, three stars, but the three stars is good. And, um, you know, from from his scale point and you know like the the you know four or five will be uh, five will be outstanding and when you do uh, maybe an article with like the top um, i don't know like 30 restaurants in north america mm -hmm. you know not all of them can have you know five stars so you're absolutely correct and and i think you know that points to you know my earlier saying you know there is no perfect rating system but one of the flaws one of the great flaws in rating systems can is the tendency to inflate the grading and if you have an opportunity to start from start something fresh like I did and make people understand that two, I, my maximum is four, a four bell is the top of the rating scale. And there's only, there were only six or seven restaurants that hit that mark and they were really meant to set, set the standard for a region and become these sort of these iconic magical experiences. I wanted there to be value in the lower rungs of the system. So if you get a two, which is the definition is very good. That's meant to be a recommendation, but with some caveats or some other other qualifiers that you need to read the story. And I started that from the beginning, and I think I think there's some there's still a lot of integrity for people getting a two bell review from the Inquirer. I think it's something they they can still be proud of. You know, the threes are the excellence. Those are really special restaurants. But again, the top of the scale was meant to be very rare and special. But again, you know, this is just a matter of what what you think your mission is as the writer. You know. I write for readers. There's my primary audience. I want to give them tools to sort of explore and understand the world of restaurants and 
help that impact their quality of life in a positive way. So, you know, a rating helps some people put things in context. And a lot of critics will say, well, the ratings are become too important. And then if it's a, if it's a one star or whatever, then nobody reads, reads the reviews or, you know, that has not been my experience. <laughs> I know that people read the reviews because I can see the engagement numbers, certainly online. I can see how many minutes people spend reading reviews on average. And it hasn't really changed since we've suspended the ratings at all. People are still reading the same amount, which makes makes me feel great. I, I, I really appreciate that because obviously you can say so much more, you know, in a 1400 word restaurant review than just the number. And, you know, we suspended the ratings during the pandemic. I didn't actually write a critical thing at all for 15 months during the pandemic. And when we decided it was... What did you do during the pandemic? <laughs> that's... Well, uh, I became, you know, I became more of a feature writer. You know, I didn't entirely take off my critic's hat. You know, I, I, I did plenty of stories of you know, where to get, you know, the customer service aspect of criticism in terms of like, you know, finding great places to recommend takeout or outdoor dining. And there were opportunities to use a critical voice in looking at our food systems and having commentary about what was going wrong, what needed to be done in terms of at every level, you know, from social justice to and equity to vaccinations and, you know, masking and all those things were opportunities for critical commentary. But much of my year and a half was really spent covering the foods, the restaurant scene as a feature writer, you know, writing about restaurant people and their struggles and their challenges and their triumphs alongside the recommendations. And there were interesting, you know, it was a great challenge when you have a a routine where you write a column that's, you know, a restaurant review one way or the other for, for many years, you get into a sort of a rhythm and you plan it out. And I, I could tell you, you know, where I was going to be eating, you know, six weeks from Wednesday, because I had, you know, charted out, you know, the flow of my restaurant reviews and the places that I was interested in. And suddenly, you know, when the pandemic came in March 2020, and every restaurant dining room shut, it was very clear we weren't going to be writing restaurant reviews. This was not the important thing discuss, you know, where can I, where can I get a really, you know, whole Bronzino? It was not like the question people wanted to ask. And in many ways, it was a really rewarding challenge to be able to look in a sort of a different angle at the food scene. And, you know, I was busy. I was really, really busy writing features. We did some investigative pieces and it makes you work a little harder as a reporter. And, you know, one thing I'd like to say as a journalist, you have to be a reporter. And I think of myself as a reporter, even as a critic, the sort of quest for information as a journalist with integrity and, you know, making sure that I'm interviewing people and talking to people and hearing those voices. Those are the things that give the kind of substance to both feature writing and, and good criticism. If you're, if you, you know, I don't just sort of walk into a restaurant and tell people what I think without having informed myself first with some conversations with the people who own, own the restaurant and who are cooking the food. You are one of the food journalists that, you know, try to keep your, you know, anonymous and, and not showing your face. Uh, of course, there is the obvious, but there's like a specific reason for you to, you know, not to, you know, share like the, you know, your face and, and uh, that people know who you are. Well, again, uh, this is this is something that dates back to, you know, when I got started, you know, this was the ideal that was kind of standard practice for restaurant critics to sort of keep, try to remain anonymous. You know, critics like, you know, Gail Green and Ruth Reichel, 
uh, wrote very colorfully about the differences between going out and being noticed and, and going out in disguise and sort of being an every person. And the idea is obviously sort of reflect the experience that your readers try to channel the experience that your readers might encounter if they went and they were, you know, a, a critic or somebody who could really make an impact on somebody's business. And, and that's the journalistic ideal. I will tell you that ideal doesn't always meet reality. And that, that's very, very hard to remain completely anonymous, especially if you're in a small you know, restaurant. You know, Philly's not a small town. It is a big city, but it has a dining scene that's very tight. And, and if you cover it, you know, cover it for a couple of decades, people do recognize you. However, I see no reason to, you know, this is, I still walk into plenty of places and, and if I don't have a completely anonymous experience, I get it for 50% of the time. I don't want the story to be about me. I want to be left alone, you know, treated like a regular customer. And if you get it even part of the time, I don't see a reason to give up that tool. You know, in the second that you, it's an all or nothing thing, the minute you put your picture out there, then it's done. It's over. Do you think that there's other people still doing this? Yeah, no, attitudes have really evolved. And it's interesting to be doing this for a while to see these schools of thought sort of evolve. You know, I think there is a reality that I'm not entirely a secret person because people do recognize me now. But I still, you know, first of all, I'd have no relationships with the people that I cover. They never know when I'm coming. I think the minute you remove that veil and you put your picture out there on top of your column, you're saying, I am a celebrity. I want, I want you to, to engage with me on a level that I'm just uncomfortable with it. This is still a conversation that is ongoing. And I, I must say also, you know, that gets a lot of attention, but the anonymity is a very, very, I said it's a tool in the box of, of a critic going out, but it's just one of many, and it's not nearly the most important. I think being a close observer uh, of your meals and doing a good interview and being a good judge of food and, and being a good journalist, those are, those are much more important. This is just one tool, but there are a lot of discussions now about identity of who, who gets to, to be the critic and who gets to be the voice, the arbiter of, you know, of quality. And there's a lot of discussions about transparency. Younger audiences want to connect with personalities and faces. I have conversations all the time with people I work for about whether or not one day, you know, I'll eventually, <laughs> you know, Unveil. Show people who I am. <laughs> it may happen. I think there's going to be a lot of disappointment and underwhelming responses when that <laughs> happens. They're like, what? You spent all these years hiding that? Um, <laughs> honestly. But so sometimes these changes, it's not something I think about a lot. We've got a lot of other things to work on. How did you start your career? What made you interested in writing, you know, about restaurant chefs and food? I was fortunate. I sort of fell into it because I sort of had a, a number of interests that ran, you know, side by side. I was living overseas. I was living in France. I was a French major in college. I studied abroad for a junior year. It was the most magical year. I lived in Paris on La Rue Mouffetard in the Saint-Quien uh, arrondissement. And I lived next door to where Hemingway wrote The Movable Feast. And actually, it's Rue des Cartes, which is like at the top of the the place that connects to La Rue Mouffetard, which is a legendary sort of medieval marketplace in the middle of Paris. And you can imagine as a young, uh, a young American aspiring writer to sort of live right next to where Hemingway wrote this, wrote some of his, his works was very inspiring. I wanted to come back to live in France. I moved after I graduated from the University of Michigan with a French degree. I moved back to France. I had another plan to get involved in the music industry, landed in Paris, 
was earning a little bit of money uh, as a freelance writer, writing about music at the time. And I started running out of money. So I got a job as a translator at a, culinary, a bilingual culinary school called La Varenne, École de Cuisine, which was at that moment was still in Paris. And my job was essentially to, you know, all the classes were given in French and all the students were international. And I would simultaneously translate what was going on with to the students. And part of the deal was I was called a stagiaire. So, you know, technically that means intern, but it's a status somewhere between student and employee. And our pay was that when all the paying students were off doing their balloon rides across Burgundy and their cheese tours and their their vineyard visits, the stagiaires would all follow a curriculum, and I was able to earn my culinary degree. The school moved to uh, northern Burgundy shortly after I uh, arrived there. We moved to a, a chateau in Vilsien, which is a tiny little town next to Joigny, which is not a big yes. town between Sens and Auxerre. My sister lives in, uh, in Burgundy, so yeah. Oh, no kidding. All right. Well, yeah, yeah. So I was, you know, I was learning to cook, and I was also writing at that time, and I put the two together and decided that I, I really, and I did do some kitchen work after I left school because I thought about maybe, you know, a culinary career. I felt more called to writing. I knew I was going to have to work really hard to, to work through the basics of, you know, of any career. You have to start at the bottom. And I decided I was ready to dive into journalism, but I needed more opportunity. So I moved back to the States. I moved to Boston and I became a freelance food writer for um, pretty much everybody but the Globe. I worked for Boston Magazine. The, Cab, the Boston Phoenix, Boston Business Journal, and I really enjoyed it. You know, the, the culinary background from France gave me entree to write about food, but I felt very quickly that I needed more of a journalism education. So I went to graduate school at Columbia to the J School, and I got out of food writing altogether. I really wanted to just learn to be a reporter. I went to work for newspapers after school. I went to Princeton. I wrote, you know, to the Princeton Packet, which is a twice weekly, I wrote 13 stories a week about planning boards and zoning boards and mm -hmm. fruitcake mm -hmm. competitions. And then I moved to the Philadelphia Inquirer. I was a suburban writer on the Cherry Hope Bureau covering Fort Dix and Guare Air Force Base in the Pinelands. And then I moved to New Orleans to be a government reporter in the East Jefferson Bureau. Oh, wow. About four months after I got there, their restaurant critic left. And I was at the right time, at the right place, with the right experience. And I was given the opportunity to be the restaurant critic at the Times in New Orleans. And it was a magical experience to sort of come back to this sort of first interest in journalism, but with a lot more skills as a, as a professional journalist that really had prepared me to sort of do it at this level for, you know, a major metropolitan daily where, you know, the production is, is much higher, the pace is much faster. The standards are higher in terms of ethics and, and the ways that you go about what you do. And that's how it began. And then from New Orleans, then you came back to, to Philadelphia after that? Yes. Yeah, I was fortunate to um, come back to the Inquirer where I had, I had worked for a year and a half as a suburban writer. And these jobs are very tricky to fill because you want somebody who knows about food, but you also want somebody who can work at, you know, at a newspaper and sometimes... Those two things are hard to, to find, and, at least in the, when I got started. It was, you know, the food, the notion of food as uh, something kind of glamorous and interesting was not nearly as, as strong as it is now with all the food media that you have. So there are a lot of people who, who aspire, I think, to be Absolutely. food critics. Everyone is a food critic now. 
everyone is a food critic. Everybody always yeah. was, but they just never had Yelp or a blog to do yeah. it. You know? well, now they have the social media platform. They can uh, express themselves. And as we know that they do a lot. What's your take on this? What's your, your view on, have you changed as well your approach of uh, your role of food critic with all that technology and tools that are available now and people rating and uh, adding their own comments, you know, about uh, restaurants on, on social media? You know, I, I don't think I've changed my central mission, which is to really explore a region through the lens of food and restaurants and tell the stories of, of, of where we live and how we live. That's sort of always what I've been doing. And, you know, I've always tried to approach it uh, from a very holistic, you know, I've never been one that was just solely focused on fine dining, for example. So those things come naturally to me. But social media has been a way to connect with new audiences. It's been a way to express ourselves in, in, in a little bit different medium, often much more like uh, spontaneous. And I would say social media is also uh, on the positive end, helped educate a lot of people about what's what's going on in the world of food or their interests in ways that perhaps, you know, they, they couldn't do that before unless they traveled around and had a lot of money to experience places. So, if, you know, if you, if you love food or if you're intrigued by food, Trolling Instagram can be a lot of fun. It can also be very educational. I think for a lot of chefs, it's been fascinating. You know, the notion of innovation and creativity, it's a trade-off. You know, you're fueled by being able to see what's happening around the globe that minute, the second somebody cooks a dish and posts it on Instagram in France or Israel or, or Hong Kong. People know right away. Sometimes I do think there's um, a virtue to, be, to being creative without a lot of noise around you as well. It, things don't happen organically as much as they used because there's just so much information sharing. But at the same time, I think the generation that's working now grew up with it. And this is the norm. So, you know, my, my goal has always been to embrace social media and new forms, new forms of connecting with readers and new generations of readers. It's really important if you're in the news, news industry, you see the cycles of the print audience is, is a certain is a certain age, and then you move on to the then the digital audience. The desktop audience is different from now. People we see the devices on Inquirer.com. We have access to all kinds of analytics that tell tell us not just how many people are, are reading, but who they are, what devices they're reading it on, how far they go into stories. We know how they interact with new innovations, and but we're pretty good at Twitter. We're pretty good at Instagram. We're pretty good at Facebook, TikTok. Not so much, you know. So how did you select the, the topics of uh, your articles and or the restaurants that you, you are going to review? Because, you, you know, you, you talked about having like, a, you know, putting together a schedule in place. So I'm, I'm just curious, how do you go about it? For much of the year, it's driven, it's driven by what's new, what's happening, if there's change at old places. You know, we have a lot of just so many openings. It's it's pretty astounding. You know, you would think the pandemic the pandemic was certainly very damaging to the industry, and yet the amount of openings that were are are occurring now, and you know, in the last six months, are at a higher pace than they were prior to the pandemic. So there's a lot of new, you know new places that I think people want to know about and need to know about, and that's. That's my primary mission, but I spread them out. You know, I try to give people variety from week to week. Again, I love diversity. That's how I love to eat. But we have a massive region that we cover, you know, from Delaware to North Jersey, from the Jersey Shore all the way. And, you know, so it's a, it's a huge region. 
was a lot of energy in the city. That is our primary focus. It's hard to turn away. But every so often when you do look up, there's really some wonderful things happening kind of all across the region. And if you you go investigate and you find that out, you, you know, we have a lot of we have a lot of readers who live outside the city who want to know what's happening in their neighborhood, too. So it's my goal is to really give people a mix from, week, you know, styles, price points, neighborhood. And then, you know, I'll mix in if there's an oldie that's had a, you know, an institution that's had a big change. I'll go back and take a look at them. Towards the end of the year, we start producing our dining guide, which comes, just came out in October. And it's a little bit more of a global look at what's going on in the scene. And it's an interesting way to sort of step back and sort of look at some of the existing players and see how they're, you know, who's, you know, it can be easy to be just constantly distracted by the shiny new object. And it's a, it's an important moment to step back and take a look at, you know, who's, how are we doing as a whole? And, and, and certainly coming out of what we've just are coming out, still coming out of, it's, it's interesting to look at everybody, you know, how the survivors as well as the newcomers. So you're talking about this, you know, the, the I guess you're referencing like the top, tef, top 10 best places to eat in Philly, correct? That's uh, that you recently published? Yes, just published this earlier this month. It's a top, so top how, 10. How do you go about this uh, this project? Because top 10 is really restrictive. It's really, yes. you know, the, the, and, I, and I'm sure it's really different from when you have a project, when you have to, you know, work on top 25 or top 50. I mean, it's, it, yeah. it takes a completely different mindset. So I'm, I'm, I'm curious to, to hear about that. It's very different. Many years ago, before we had a dining guide, I put out a couple books when people still bought books about restaurants. And I had a top 76 in the books. And that was, that was, that was hard. You wanted to be inclusive and give people a range. Now, when we went to the dining guide, there was a smaller book and, you know, traditionally 25 restaurants seemed like uh, a good, a good uh, a snapshot of what was going on. And those were all, you know, prestigious things to put in 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 there uh and i think that was an honor to be included but when you ask somebody a top 10 it's a much it's a a very different question and you start to really get to the essence of you know what are the places that reflect the best of what's going on now and the best what does that mean you know the most impact or that there's for me it was a matter of getting out there and in eating again at restaurants we only had half a year to put this to get half of a dining year to put this together so 10 made seem more manageable since we really weren't even eating inside. I wasn't eating inside restaurants for, for, until So what's, what's, what are your criteria, you know, to do that? There's so many ethnic, you know, places. So you said, oh, my gosh, you know, which cuisine am I going to, you know, to, to keep? And, you know, I, I, I will have a lot of questions. <laughs> I know yeah. how to approach Well, no, the goal of any, of any list like that is to, to include uh, as much diversity as you can. But... The important thing was for me to eat around and, and feel this sort of, in the top 10, every one of these places that I included, I sense there's like a spark. There's a magic feeling of being there that just felt like it captured something in this moment um, that was a little bit more than some of the other places. I had a lot of really great restaurants. I had 60 plus meals to sort of consider different restaurants. And, and it was, you sort of go with a feeling like, where, where am I feeling that magic? And it is a mix. This list is a mix of places that have been sort of working their way up for a long time. A place like Friday, Saturday, Sunday, for example, is a restaurant that has been on the rise, you know, for several years, took a lot of blows during the the pandemic, like a lot of people did. 
but emerged as with a tasting menu, very focused. And I just felt like that was a good case of a restaurant that had had continued to mature and find a voice, you know, and was really expressing it, you know, in this difficult moment, but in a beautiful, beautiful ways. You know, and then you had some of the international flavors that make Philadelphia such an amazing place to eat. Kalaya, for example, is the the, the southern Thai restaurant owned, owned by Nok uh, Sutarnon is to me, when you go to a, there and you sit down and you, you can eat outside on the sidewalk and these these fresh made curries and these larbs and these hot pots full of giant prawn, river prawns, those flavors just leap off the table and they linger in my imagination. They hum on my tongue and my lips are just buzzing, you know, for for days, not because of the heat, but because of the complexity of flavors. So these are these are experiences that leave impact. That's how you got to go eat the meals. And that's what I've always said. You have that's the value of having um, a critic who has you know, you know a, an institution behind them that can fund fund those meals that are independent. Nobody, I do not accept any free food. The newspaper pays for what I eat. So these are independent meals. It, listen, it's a big commitment to do this right. And a lot of publications that are struggling will look at this and say, "They let's not like when we could just send somebody out there to get free food." Because let me tell you. You know, restaurants will, will give free food to people if they think they're an influencer that can help out. That's that's out there if you want. But the restaurant, the, the publications that invest in something like like what I do in a dining guide, I think I think there's a great benefit both in readership and revenues if you do it right. That is worth it's worth the investment. And don't you know as as we as as the world of news becomes more global and the internet becomes, you know, gives access to people to so much information. A couple things that, that local news organizations still have the corner on that is sports and local culture. Those are things that you, you know, when you have good voices and good coverage of those items, I think your, your publication can remain relevant to their, to the local readership in ways that sometimes other aspects of your operation will struggle at. So let's talk a little bit about the uh, the Philadelphia food scene. So how would you describe the culinary scene at, in Philly? Well, Philly's, you know, a big East Coast city with a lot of diversity, a lot of immigrant flavors sort of fueling the city literally since it was founded, you know, several hundred years ago. Wave after wave upon immigrants have sort of left a, a meaningful impact on what we do. What sets Philly apart, though, from the rest of the East Coast, I believe, is this a more accessible level of a scale. There's a human scale to our restaurants. They're smaller. They tend to be neighborhood restaurants. They tend to be more affordable uh, for the people who are investing in them so that they can really focus more on food and service. Like I said, there's a size. You know, the typical Philadelphia restaurant is 35 to 40 to 50 seats, you know, often a BYOB. People get to know the people who run that restaurant. So it's a very personal place in a way that when I go to New York City, I feel like a number. I feel like I'm just another person coming through that restaurant. They're just desperately churning through to sort of make the rent, you know, and we're not a power lunch scene like you have in in Washington, D.C. This is not an expense account town. People go out and they spend their own money, and there's always, as a result, I think, an element of value in what, in what Philadelphia does. So some of that is that we're not exactly a trend-setting city. We don't invent a lot of things, but 
we have a lot of talent that has been able to sort of find its way here and find opportunities. And the quality and the diversity of what we have is really exceptional. So, so when you're talking about yeah. uh, diversity and different type of cuisine, so w- which type do you see lately bubbling up in Philly? The two primary forces that we're feeling in, in recent years are the influx of, of Mexican immigrants to South Philadelphia and Southeast Asian immigrants as well. I mean, those two international strains are really fueling what's going on in town and having a wider influence across the city. South Philadelphia, you know, has it really since 2001, really since 9-11, was sort of the turning point, became a destination for immigrants from the, from the region of Puebla, the state of Puebla in, in, in Mexico. And now there are, by some estimates, 25,000 Mexicans now living in South Philadelphia. Many of them worked in the restaurant industry behind the scenes. And you know now, you know, a generation into this, a lot of them are well-established. They have families. They have business, businesses of their own. There's an entrepreneurial spirit that's sort of rising. Now, I've got a chance to sort of really kind of document this a couple of years ago with a big takeout. We called it Puebla Delphia. You know, the food, and now that's spreading now outside of South Philadelphia. So we're seeing great sort of restaurants with rooted in tradition sort of appearing all around town. There's, you know, move to sort of people making their own masa from local corn. There's, you know, spice like tagine spice, you know, the con- the con- Mexican condiment that you dust is like a tangy chili pepper. That's, you know, making its way onto in cocktail bars all across the city that have nothing to do with Mexican food. It's just these flavors are influencing the city. So that's very exciting to see. And when it comes to Southeast Asia, which which country do you see, you know, the most influence from? Well, the largest population, I believe, is Vietnamese. In South, again, South Philadelphia was sort of a destination, but you know, this is uh, multi multi generational now, and so so those communities have continued to spread. You know, we've just started to see, like, you know, the next generation of Vietnamese restaurants appear where we're starting to find things beyond and broken rice platters. But we're discovering some some more regional things that are being brought directly from Vietnam. Gabriella's Vietnam, Anis Pashyank is a really good example of that. But we also have a vibrant Indonesian community, which is continuing to grow places like Hardena are sort of like pioneers and, you know, bellwethers of like that. We have some Malaysian cooks in town. We had a wonderful restaurant, Sate Kampar, that closed during the pandemic. But, you know, those influences, the sate and the, and the flavor, the, those things are, are still very present, you know, in terms of we have incredible markets on Washington Avenue, primarily owned by Vietnamese. But they're huge supermarkets and they're regional draws that people are coming, you know, all, for, all across the region to do their grocery shopping. We have a, a huge, a very healthy Korean population in Philadelphia. And again, next generations are stepping up to sort of run, you know, younger, more mainstream kind of uh, versions of of Korean restaurants. We have a lot going on and we have still have quite a vibrant Chinatowns. You know, that's one of the gems of Philadelphia that a lot of a lot of cities don't have the benefit of. Of course, New York it has three, three or four of them. You can't really compete with that. But we have, you know, one of the oldest Chinatowns in, in North America and it's, you know, a, a four or five square block radius that's getting you know new new flavor new new arrivals and new ideas you know from different regions every every week it seems like 
Very good. If it's okay with you, let's switch to the, the rapid fire question before we, we close okay. the, uh, let's, our conversation. Let's so um, you and I are going on a tasting tour in Philly. So what are like the five spots that you will take me to? The five spots I would take you to. I would take you to, I would take you to Kalaya. So you could see this sort of exciting, sort of one of the most you know vibrant flavors you can get in Philadelphia. I would take you down the street to Villa de Roma. Villa de Roma, also in the middle of the Italian market, is one of the best of what we call the Italian red gravy joints of South Philly. These are, you know, I talk about the sort of dynamic ways of immigration. You know, they, they descend from the, the, the Italian immigrants who came, you know, in the late 1800 and settled, you know, South Philadelphia. And, you know, this was one of the iconic cuisines of the 20th century of Philadelphia, Italian-American cooking the meatballs are still handmade by, you know, 75-year-old brother named Basil DeLuca. Everything's made by hand or, or his daughter or his granddaughter. The, the flavor of the sauce, there's a, the, the room has this vintage feel straight out of Rocky. Nothing has changed, but the quality is still great. I would take you to, you know, we talked about Mexican food. I would take you to South Philly Barbacoa, you know, also on 9th Street. We're sticking on 9th Street for this tour because you can see the, you can see almost the whole city through this, but I would take you to South Philly Barbacoa. You can see uh, Christina Martinez is a, a chef from Mexico and her husband, Ben, have created that. All they do is a lamb barbacoa from her region of Capuhuac. And it is one of the most transcendent things. It's all they make. And it's the weekend mornings. And you go and you get this the whole lamb chopped down with fresh tortillas made. So that's a great spot. Well, um, so yeah. I would take you, let's talk about something new, new. And I think it's really interesting. I just wrote about a, a little restaurant called Her Place, Her Place Supper Club. This is a young chef named Amanda Schulman who just you know kind of came back to Philadelphia recently and, and opened a pop-up inside of a small, a former pizza shop and the BYOB. And it's a tasting menu that she does. Amanda used to work for Mark Vetri, and she also worked at Joe Beef, and then she worked at Momofuku Co., and she went to Penn. That's how she had got involved in Philadelphia and sort of did her time around, abroad, and she moved back to Philadelphia quite recently with a plan to open her restaurant and started as a pop-up, a two-month pop-up, and people loved it so much. She extended it another six months, and she's still going. Now, she's not an institution, but I think what she's doing reflects very much part of the value of Philadelphia that, you know, we are this accessible place where you can come and, you know, as a talent and make your way and her food's fantastic as well. Then I would probably take you to Royal Izakaya. Royal Izakaya is a fantastic, fantastic Japanese restaurant. It's a bar in the front and one of the best omakase sushi places you can get really anywhere people, you know, Spend three, four hundred dollars for the kind of experience they're charging uh, much less for. Is that five, or can I give you? Can I give you one more? Uh, you can give me a sixth one. I think you should check out Laser Wolf. Is is the other one? You know, any visit to Philadelphia probably has to include one of the restaurants owned by Mike Mike Solomonov and Stephen Cook. That they're the guys behind Zahav, which is one of Philadelphia, arguably Philadelphia's most famous restaurant, modern Israeli. Good luck getting into Zahav. If you can get into Zahav. Go for yeah, I've it. Been, I've been before, so yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, Laser Wolf is their new is a new so it's a house more accessible sort of sibling. It's in Kensington, it's in the neighborhood of Kensington, which is a neighborhood of great flux and excitement and energy right now, next to Fishtown, a little bit on the northern side of town. 
And Laser Wolf is sort of a, an Israeli grill house concept where you start with all, all this this massive pinwheel tray of uh, salatim and uh, hummus and fresh pitas, and then you pick pick uh, skewers of protein to be cooked uh, cooked to order. And you can it's a, it's just like a little bit more accessible and a little bit more spontaneous than Zahav is these days. They reserve seats for walk-ins, especially at the bar, where they make some wonderful cocktails with arak and other cool sort of Levantine ingredients. It's just the beginning. You're getting me started. We could be talking another <laughs> hour. So what's your favorite guilty pleasure food? It would be it would be either a cheeseburger. I mean, I it's my it's really my favorite food, or it would be a corned beef Reuben. Okay, but there's guilt into it in this one, or no? <laughs> guilt only because it's probably the last thing I should be eating in my spare time. <laughs> but just trying to like moderate the health aspects of, of my life. Okay. Okay, so you were saying at the beginning or in our conversation before that you are as well cooking. There's maybe three cookbooks that you could share that maybe uh, inspired you the most. Yeah, let's see. I certainly the the Momofuku book was was pretty influential in in terms of you know I really I think those recipes really are very accessible. They work really well. Marcella Hazan. Her classic Italian book is a steady reference. Often return to that book. Who else? Oh my goodness! I, I'm at that stage where I don't, I don't, I, I have all, I have all these recipes sort of clipped and in, in, browned in, inside my book. Julia Child, of course, you know, is mastering the art of French cooking. You know, I studied French cooking. I have a great feeling for it, and there's lots of other, you know, more, more up to date. Uh, versions, you know, Robuchon and mm-hmm. Bunkerick mm-hmm. and yeah. all these guys. But I always find myself going back to what did Julia say? What was that's like the those are like the base recipes for me. Okay. So what's the best and the worst things about being a food critic? The best thing about being a food critic is just this privilege of being able to explore the magic talents of the foods, you know, how people express themselves through food and restaurants and having this uh, this privilege of the resources of an expense account to go out and do that, that I, at a level that no mortal person who's not, you know, a corporate, you know, wealthy person can do. So, so really, you know, that, that's like a, it's a, it's a bit of a superpower to be able to sort of go out and eat whatever you want because you're interested in it and not have to think about like, can I afford this? Of course, you never lose that as you're, as you're, as you write, you know, cause it's, it's, You know, you're writing for people, you know, in their own budgets, and, and I'm always mindful of that. But the, that's the, that's really the best thing is the, the the privilege of being able to go out and uh, ask all the questions you want and not not have to worry about paying for it yourself. The worst thing about being being a critic is, I think, sometimes delivering um, bad news to people, knowing that there are you know hardworking individuals often on the other end of the criticism. You know, you realize. Uh, that is the hardest thing to do because you're writing for readers. You always remind yourself that when you write something critical, it's it's not just to be mean. It's to sort of guide the people who are spending money on the other end of whatever it is you're writing. But there's the people you're writing about will often take it very personally, and they should because this is their life's work. That doesn't mean it doesn't feel uncomfortable sometimes to sort of deliver deliver bad news, and, and it's always rooted in a truthful, real experience. Have you ever been uh, in trouble for leaving a bad review? I've gotten a lot of blowback from 
chefs and, and, and readers, absolutely. I mean, that's part of the job. I mean, you have to express if you have strong opinions, and most critics have strong opinions. Often you hold people accountable, and the people accountable don't want to be held accountable and get upset. I've been fortunate to always have the backing of my institutions, you know, the, the publications that I worked for, that I never felt I was actually in trouble with the people I worked for. Most, mostly, <laughs> mostly. You occasionally get notes from people, but never felt like I was in trouble. My last question. So everyone, I mean, not everyone maybe, but there's a lot of people that think that restaurant reviewing is the ultimate dream job. So is it really? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. First of all, I'm, I'm made for this job because I love food. I love to eat. I love people. I love culture. There's nothing I'd rather be doing than than this job. And, and it is a great, great privilege to do it. So I can't think of a better job. Very good. Craig, thank you so much for sharing uh, all those uh, thoughts and your, you know, life experience being a food critic with us on Flavors Unknown. Appreciate your time. So thank you for being a guest. It's uh, an honor to be asked, and I'm so glad to chat with you, Manuel. You ask great questions, and it's fun to talk. Thank you. Thank you for listening today. And if you are a new listener, I hope you will follow us on the podcast platform you use to listen to all your podcasts and subscribe to our newsletter on the website flavorsunknown.com. Isn't Craig Laban's job the best job in the world? I hope that you have taken the suggestion from Craig regarding the new restaurant scene in Philadelphia. If you haven't had the chance to do so, you can check out the episode show notes on the website flavorsunknown.com. In two weeks, my guest will be Chef Sheldon Simeon from Maui. He is the author of the new cookbook, Cook Real Hawaiian. I will give away one cookbook from Chef Sheldon Simeon on a raffle organized from my Instagram account at flavorsunknown. Make sure to participate. I see you in two weeks. And until then, remember that people who love to eat are always the best people. Thanks for listening to Flavors Unknown. If you've enjoyed this episode, give us a follow on Instagram at Flavors Unknown and visit us at flavorsunknown.com. Don't forget to leave us a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts.